When Jesus heard that John, that's John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Galilee is far up in the north, above where John had been ministering and where Jesus had spent some time. We know from the Gospel of John, Jesus had spent some time down here, but now he's going back to the north, to Galilee, uh, to this northern district. Which, by the way, Galilee is a district in the far north, but it's also a district that's very mixed. There's a lot of Jews there, but there's a lot of Gentiles there as well. It's about, you know, roughly half and half. Uh, A lot of cities, a lot of villages up there. Uh, but about half Gentiles and half Jews. You'll see that uh, referred to in a minute. Leaving Nazareth, that's where he grew up, he went and lived in Capernaum. This becomes his new hometown, Capernaum, which which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. These are the tribal areas, the original tribal areas. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun, and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So many Gentiles are there, and in history, many Gentiles have lived there, in fact, almost taken over the area at times. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. This is a summary of his message, which will be filled out in the Sermon on the Mount. But here's the summary. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Let me pause there for a second. First of all, Jesus is being referred to as this great light on those in darkness, those the people in Galilee living in darkness, not just the Gentiles, of course, but initially he goes to the Jews. The message gets to the Gentiles later. But the light is... uh, The light is being displayed in Galilee of the Gentiles, this place far away from Jerusalem, far in the north, a mixed place, a place with a lot of uh, not high in the reputation of most Jews, but Jesus' light is shining there. In the Bible, the light typically means uh, knowledge, knowledge of God, and the light also often means obedience to God, which Jesus himself is the light, but but he's bringing this light as well to them. He's bringing the light of a new and better knowledge of God. In his coming in Jesus, it's portrayed in Jesus himself. He is showing them who God is, and he's teaching them who God is, but also he's teaching them the true way of obedience, which they have not not understood and missed. He's going to be teaching them um, how to live as light themselves. And so he says to them, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. I preached a lot of sermons recently, both in the evening and the morning, on this word repent. As I said, at one point, it means to change your life or to change your mind. Uh, to change your life, to turn to a new life. But um, I'm not going to pause here and spend much time here. I've talked about that word a lot recently, but remind you that what does he want? The question is, what does he want them to change their lives to? If he's saying repent, which means change your life, turn from your, your, your way to a new way, a new way of living. What does he want them to do? He's going to explain that in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's why we're rushing towards the Sermon on the Mount, because in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to say, and this is the way that you should live. This is what you should do. Change your life to this. Live this way. I'm going to explain this now in in greater detail. And the second thing is, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, what is the kingdom going to bring? What will the kingdom bring? When the kingdom finally comes in, what will it bring? Um, The kingdom is near, he says. And in a sense, the kingdom is near in Jesus himself at this point. Jesus himself is a representative 
is showing them the kingdom. But, he, but, there's also the, but also, uh, the sermon's going to show us that the fullness of the kingdom is still future. The fullness of the kingdom is still future. And so the Beatitudes, which we're going to get to in a minute, are going to show us what does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is near. He's going to tell them, just in the Beatitudes themselves, many things about what it means when the kingdom comes. The kingdom is near, but what will it mean when the kingdom finally fully arrives? Let's read on. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, this lake, they refer to as a sea, but it's, 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 it's more rightly referred to as a lake, probably. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. By the way, this is not the first time Jesus has met them. We don't know this from Matthew, but we know this from John, that Jesus has met these men earlier, but now is the time when he officially calls them to be his disciples. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, the author of the gospel. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and followed him. So we have this picture of the Jesus has not called any disciples yet in the Gospel of Matthew. This is you're, 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 you're used to that idea, but remember where we are in the Gospel of Matthew, and he hasn't called any, any followers, any disciples yet. So these are four disciples that he calls. And you know, for them, for, for them you know, this, this, I, this idea of repent, change your life is even more dramatic because they're being called on to change their life uh, you know, completely. Leave the job that you have now. Uh, leave your family, not abandon your family. Th- their family would still be cared for. We know that just from Jesus' teaching, that he would never allow someone to uh, abandon their family. But he de- they do have to leave their families for long periods of time. Uh, they have to leave the business. They have to leave their father. Uh, James and John have to leave their father Zebedee. Um, so they're changing their life, but they're taking up also um, whatever Jesus is going to teach them. It doesn't use the word disciple here, but it's about to use it in chapter 5. That's the idea. These are If you're going to follow after Jesus, you're going to become a disciple of Jesus. You're going to change your life. You're going to repent. A disciple is a religious word that we use, which has its basic connotation, is basic idea is student, a student. A disciple of a master is a student of a teacher. It's an apprentice to a master. It's that kind of thing. It's someone who is following someone else to learn from them, to receive from them the teaching that they need. And in this case, the teaching is about how to live your life, about what life is, about who God is, about who Jesus is, about what Jesus is doing, and about what Jesus is calling them now to live, how to live. So they are becoming students of Jesus. They are, these four are dropping their, their professions, uh, leaving their families for long periods of time, and they're going off to be with Jesus, to live with him day after day after day, day in, day out, and to be his students, to learn from him. Now, in their culture, typically uh, um, uh, a person would come to a rabbi and say, I've studied really hard, I've learned this, I've read this, I've read the other thing. Could I be one of your disciples? And the rabbi would consider it and then you know, you know, give approval or not and, and say, yeah, you may join with me and be my and be my, be my disciple, and you can be part of my school, and I'll teach you. But Jesus comes forth and just says, you're coming with me. Come on. Come on. You're my disciple. I'm making you my disciple. Uh, you didn't pick me. I'm picking you. 
um, and, and, and I'm making you my disciple. Uh, and so I want to ask you briefly, before, but just pausing here for a minute, um, are you comfortable with that kind of language in your life? Is that who you are? Are you a student of Jesus? Are you a disciple of Jesus? I don't mean are you following Jesus, traipsing behind him through on the dusty roads of Galilee, physically following him, but are you following him? Are you living with him day in, day out as his student? Are you in the school of Jesus? We're about to read the teachings of the school of Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7, but are you, are you in the school of Jesus? Are you learning in the school of Jesus? Are you following behind Christ? Are you learning his teaching and trying to follow, trying to obey, trying to implement those teachings? Is that truly your life? Is that, is that, is that the way you're in? Um, uh, and notice he says that, that he will make them fishers of men, which I think the idea there is as you learn and as you obey, as you learn and as you begin to obey what I'm teaching you, as you re- you've repented, taken up a new life, as you learn it, as you begin to obey, I will make you fishers of men. You will begin to be the kinds of people, because you've learned it yourself, you're obeying God's way now yourself, you will begin to be the kind of people who can fish out of the waters other men, gather out of the waters or out of the crowds or out of the, the masses of people, out of the world, you'll be able to gather out of that, like, like, like reaching into the water with your net and pulling fish out like a fisherman. You're going to into the world um, because now you've learned it and because now you're obeying it, you can now, now, you're now in the place that you can go out there and pull from the world men and women, uh, people from the world to become disciples of Jesus as well, to receive forgiveness of their sins, to receive salvation, and to begin to live this same life of discipleship as well. And I want to say something that I said in the Acts sermons in the evening a few times to remind you of this before we move on, which is you need to understand, East Ridge Presbyterian Church, that our mission field, our mission field is people who already know Jesus, who already know about Jesus. They've heard about him. They know his name. They know some basic things about him. They may even call themselves Christians. They may even uh, say they are Christians. They may, uh, they may, you know, they may know loosely some things about Christ. They may, you know, they have, may have uh, even have an affection for Jesus and have, but, but student isn't really describing them yet. And so we need to become students of Jesus and learn and, and be obeying and then going out and, and teaching people, the people out there, even though don't think of yourself when you're doing evangelism or doing missionary work in Chattanooga that you've got to find the people who are Muslims or atheists or agnostics. There's a few of them out there, but most of the people out there are people who go by the name Christian or say they already believe in Jesus, but they don't know what he actually taught. They don't actually know his real teachings about God, his doctrines, or his commandments. They don't know much about it at all. And if they do know a little bit about it, they don't take it very seriously. So our work, our work of evangelism is, is not only, uh, you know, you talk to them about uh, uh, forgiveness of sins and Jesus dying on the cross. Many of them will dismiss that quickly. Yeah, yeah, I already did it. I already did it. I already did it. That's all taken care of. I was like seven when I took care of that. Or I was 19 when I took care of that or something. You know, they took care of it already, but they have no idea yet what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a student of Jesus. And so that's part of our role as students of Jesus here at East Ridge Presbyterian Church is to get that teaching, to get the Word of God out to the people out here. 
who are already somewhat opened up to it by the fact that they know who Jesus is. And, and, and they're, they're like the crowds in this story. They're the crowds who are somewhat interested in Jesus, but not yet disciples of Jesus. And so that's what we need to do. To be fishers of men is to bring people from the crowds uh, of East Ridge, Chattanooga, Ringgold, Fort Oglethorpe, bring them in. Bring them in to receive the teaching, teaching from, from you, but also teaching from your church and, and, and all of that. So if we learn Jesus' way, we walk Jesus' way, and then we can also begin to teach Jesus' way to others and be a fisher, be a fisher, uh, fisherman ourselves, bringing in people. Let's, let's finish the chapter here, verse 23. Jesus, another summary statement of Jesus' ministry. Jesus went throughout Galilee. By the way, there were something like 200 villages and cities in Galilee. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, so that's in the places of worship, teaching in their synagogues, but also preaching the good news of the kingdom, probably there means outside in the open air, also preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, uh, which is a large, large area, and people brought to him, and, and, and that and includes outside of, of the Jews, outside of the Jewish nation, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, and those having seizures um, or suffering from um, forms of mental illness is also a, a possible interpretation of that, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, the Ten Cities, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him, came after him to see what he was doing. So what does it say here? It says that Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom. Once again, we're going to explore that with the Beatitudes in just a minute. What is the good news of the kingdom? The Beatitudes are going to explain that. What is the kingdom bringing? What is this good news? Jesus is teaching something that's exciting, something that's, that's, that's he's, he's, he's teaching them something that comes across as, as an exciting, exciting piece of news, good news uh, about the kingdom of God, and that we're going to see more about that, what that means. Here it's just labeled, but what does it really mean? We'll see in the Beatitudes and in other places as we keep pushing on. Um, but I want to mention one thing about the healings. What's the point of all the healings? Um, the healings can have many different significances. I've talked about just recently in, in our Acts study, I talked about one of the significances, or two different ones, actually. So there's lots of different significances of the healing, but I'll bring up one right now, okay? All this healing that Jesus is doing, he's preaching the good news of the kingdom, that what God is going to do when the kingdom comes in. But then he's giving them a taste of the healing of that kingdom. When the kingdom comes in, there's going to be this great healing of all sin and all of its consequences. That's the idea. When the, he, when the, when the day of the kingdom finally breaks in in all of its fullness, it's already present in Jesus and then in the church, but when it breaks in in all of its fullness and all of its blessing, it's going to be a day of great healing, healing of sin, freedom from the devil, Freedom from all the consequences of the sin as well. All these illnesses and death and all the, the suffering and pain in the world, which is the consequences of sin. That's what the kingdom is bringing, healing of all of that. So as Jesus goes along, he's just giving them these tastes. I'm talking about the kingdom. You want to see a little bit of what the kingdom's going to be like when it comes? Bam. Have you ever seen anything like that before? That's just a taste. 
You know, I used to listen to these uh, samples. Of, did I want to buy this? I know this is, this is ancient history, but, you know, indulge me for a second. I used to listen to these samples when I wanted to buy a piece of music, like, let's say, a classical piece of music, and they'd let me hear 30 seconds of it, you know? So I could listen to 30 seconds of it, a sample of it. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. I like that. I'm going to buy it. I like that. There was a t- That's what Jesus was doing. He was giving them these samples these little tastes of the kingdom. The kingdom is so good you can't imagine it, but this will give you just a little flavor, just a little taste. This guy's blind, bam, he can see. This guy can't walk, bam. He can. This person is filled with mental illness and completely uh, out of touch with reality, bam, completely sane. This person's controlled by the devil. The devil talks through her, bam, set free. No devils in her at all anymore, completely set free. And he's saying to them, this is, this is what it's going to be like. You're seeing little tastes of it, little tastes, this and this and this. It, when, he, when, I, when, when the kingdom comes in, when Jesus sets up camp fully, completely, this is what it's going to be universally, everywhere, in everyone. You know, obviously, there are those who must be cast out, who reject God. But in the, in, the, in the kingdom of God, this is what's going to take this full, this full kind of healing. And we're going to see this once again in the Beatitudes. So let's read on to what the Beatitudes say to get to the, get to the sermon. Now, chapter 5. Now, when he saw the crowds, so Jesus sees these crowds that are with him. He went up on a mountainside. And that's sort of the traditional translation, but a lot of people make the point that it probably would have been better translated, he went up into the hill country. Um, because these weren't like mountains uh, like, like some of us may think of when we think of mountains. But he went up into the hill country, into a, into a, hilly, into a hilly area, um, and he sat down. This was a traditional way for rabbis to teach, sitting down in the chair of authority. His disciples came to him. Now, we only know about four so far. There could have been a lot more. We don't know, but we only know of four, so at least we know that Peter, Andrew, James, and John are there. It might just be four sitting with him. It's probably more, but, uh, but we don't know that. There's at least those four sitting. So his disciples come to him, and what he's going to do is he's going to talk to his disciples, and he's talking to them about their lives and what he's, at, what he's calling them to do and who they are and the blessing that's coming on them, and he's talking to them, but he's letting the crowds listen in. It doesn't say that here, but later we're going to find out that the crowds were listening in. So that's That's sort of the way Jesus works is he talks to his disciples, but he lets the crowds listen in to find out what is this, would you like to go from just being in the crowd to being one of the students, to being one of the disciples? Would you like to leave the crowd and become an actual disciple of Jesus? And Jesus is teaching what that means. When he calls the crowds to repent, what is he calling them to do? What is he calling them to live? This is what he's calling them uh, to be. So it says, he went up on a mountainside, he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, or he opened up his mouth. The NIV uh, takes that strange phrase out, but uh, it's there in in some of your translations, I'm sure. He opened up his mouth, and he began to teach them. And he said these things, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there's one more. Those are the eight Beatitudes, but there's a ninth Beatitude, which sometimes we we don't notice, but it's right after, and it changes. He makes the point, and he's sort of summarizing everything in this ninth one, and he's switching from third person to first person, making it clear that who he's talking about is his, are his disciples. This whole time he's been talking about his disciples, and now he makes that clear by saying you. Um, he says, blessed are you. He's not switching, oh, I was talking about somebody else, but now I'm talking about you. No, the whole time he's been talking about them, just in third person. Um, but now he's making it clear with this ninth beatitude. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who came before you. So nine beatitudes here. Now, the traditional The traditional interpretation of that first word in each of them is blessed, right, or blessed, blessed or blessed. You've probably heard alternate translations that people have proposed, and I think uh, when I hear these alternate translations, they help me a little bit better than blessed does. Blessed may work work best for you, and if if, if that's something that that gives you the right idea, that's okay. But, um, But one of the translations, there's several translations that I encountered with different scholars arguing for that this would be a little bit better. No one says, this is it. This has got to be it. No one's saying, this is the English word, because that's not the way translation works, that there's one English word. But but some say, I feel like this gets at it a little bit better than this does. One of them is fortunate. Fortunate. Where Jesus is trying to say to them, fortunate. This may sound weird to you, and he doesn't mean by that, doesn't mean by that luck, lucky, but it means these are the ones who are really fortunate. These are the ones whose lives are really good. And then it's very strange. He says, fortunate are the poor in spirit. Fortunate are those who mourn. Fortunate are the meek. Fortunate are those who are persecuted. Fortunate. Another way it's translated is privileged. Privileged, the same sort of idea. Another one, another uh, great scholar has just written a book on the Sermon on the Mount, and he translates it flourishing saying this is the life of flourishing. And, it seemed, and it, if it sounds weird to you, it's supposed to sound weird. When Jesus said this, they were, they were supposed to have gone, what, what? These are the ones who are privileged? The ones you're describing are the privileged ones? He, he's saying flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing, these are the ones who flourish. Or happy is also an often translation, as long as you don't think of it as feeling happy. It doesn't mean feeling happy. It means you, are, you have the true happy state or happy condition. Happy is the condition of the, poor, of the poor in spirit. Happy is the condition, the true happies. doesn't mean they feel happy all the time, but it means their condition is a truly happy condition, a truly fortunate condition, a truly flourishing condition, privileged condition. So what Jesus is saying here is their condition is happy. Even if they don't feel happy or even if there's problems in their life, which there are from what he's describing here, but their condition is happy. They are flourishing. Um, So what he's saying to them is change your mind about what real flourishing is. You think about human life in one way. You think about this is flourishing. This is what flourishing looks like. This is what the happy state looks like. This is, it's an easy life. It's the life without a lot of problems. It's the life where things are flowing along. That's privileged. That's fortunate. You say that person has a fortunate life. That person has a blessed life. That person has a happy life or a happy state. 
And Jesus is saying the very opposite, that he's not, that's not the fortunate life. He's talking about another kind of life, which is the fortunate life. These people who are miserable, and make no mistake, Jesus is talking about people who in one sense are miserable. He's talking about people who are miserable. And he's saying these miserable ones I'm describing here, and it's you disciples, this is the life you've taken up that you're engaged in already because he's already been traveling around for a while. The disciples have been with him. And he's saying this is the life you've taken up, this life that's tough. I know the life you're living is tough. The life that you're living, is, is it, there's a lot of trouble. There's a lot of sadness in it. There's a lot of problems in it. But you are the truly fortunate ones. You have the really happy life. You have the life that is really blessed. You have the life that is real. This is real flourishing. What you're living out is real. Now, people will tell you that's flourishing. That's fortunate. But I'm telling you, Jesus says, on my authority, that this life that you're living and all of its trouble and all of its misery, this is the happy life. This is the fortunate life. This is the blessed life, the thriving life, the, the, the flourishing life. And so what he's going to give us here is, and, and so I want you to see, I'm going to read it back through again, but I'm only going to read the first half of each, the first half of each, because every beatitude has two halves, right? We'll get to the second half in a minute. I'm going to read the first half, and I want you to see, don't miss this, that this is not saying nine different kinds of people. Or saying, some Christians have these two, some Christians have these three, some Christians are, you know, no, no. He's describing the same person. This is nine facets of the very same disciple. It's just nine different ways of describing what a disciple of Jesus is in this world, okay? Nine different ways of describing it. So as you go through this beatitude, nine facets of, of a disciple. And don't miss this. That's often missed. People think, well, I've got this one, but I don't have this one or, or something. But it's, it's, all, it's all a package. They all connect with each other. They're all of a piece. And, and, and they all go together. And you can't pull them apart and separate them and say there's this kind and this kind. But they're all, they all go together. And the other thing I would say is that you need to understand that these are nine miseries. There's trouble. Every nine, all nine of these, some of them you may say, pure in heart, that's not a problem. That, that, that sounds great you got to take them all together. There's trouble in all nine of these. Jesus is describing someone who is living a troubled life in all nine situations. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Number one, poor in spirit. Poor in spirit does not simply mean humble. It, even John Calvin says this. I know, I know a lot of people will say it just means humble. That's not what it means. It means someone whose life is very difficult. John Calvin said it meant someone who was afflicted by adversity but trusted God, and that's what it means. That's what that's what modern scholars say. I was, I was reading all these modern scholars this week, and then I read Calvin after I'd read four or five modern scholars. I was like, wow, Calvin has it exactly right. 500 years ago, he had it exactly right. He already knew uh, what, you don't, what, what, what these scholars today are, are saying. Look, look what we discovered. Well, Calvin already discovered it 500 years ago. P poor in spirit means afflicted uh, by adversity, but trusting God in the middle of that adversity. You're going through adversity. You're going through hardship but you're trusting God. Mourning. Mourning meant the people who were suffering, the people who were wretched. Um, and yet, in the middle of that, the blessed, blessed or fortunate are those who mourn. You know, some people translate that happy are those who mourn, not meaning those mourning are also feeling happy, but meaning those who are mourning are the truly happy ones, the ones who have, lived, who have the truly happy state of life. Um, if, and it's not just saying anybody who's afflicted or anybody who's mourning, 
Trust in God is connected to this. They must be disciples of Christ, those who trust in God. Remember, he's talking to his disciples. So he's saying, uh, those who are afflicted by adversity and trusting in God, poor in spirit, mourning, those who are wretched, suffering, but trusting in God. Meek, meek meant those who had been, it, it combined two things. It was the idea of people who had a low position, they were enduring injuries in life, humbled by life, going in a low place, but also they weren't, in, they weren't responding to it in a violent or aggressive way, but instead doing what? Trusting God. Trusting they, Their response to their being afflicted, their response to their being in a low place and being injured was not fighting back aggression, uh, violence, fighting, but instead was meekness, humility. Tr- in other words, putting their hope in God, trusting in God. So you see so far, these, these three have been uh, difficult things. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Righteousness in the Gospel of Matthew is not, is not a reference to justification, but a reference to obedience to God, doing God's will. Righteousness is, is doing God's will. So he's saying that these are people who are hungering and thirsting after their own righteousness, meaning, notice this, they're not perfect yet. They're not, they don't have it all down yet because why? They're feeling a hunger for righteousness. They're feeling an absence of righteousness that they're hungering for. They want to change. They want to be more obedient to God. They hunger to be more obedient to God. They thirst to be more obedient to God. And there's probably also meaning here, a hungering and thirsting for other people to be righteous, for other people to obey God as well. But notice, is hungering and thirsting a pleasant image? No, it's a feeling of, of it's, 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 a, it's an emptiness. It's a feeling of, uh, an unpleasant hunger and thirst is not is an unpleasant thing. So they're, what they're hungering after is a wonderful thing: righteousness to obey God. They hunger to obey God. They hunger that other people would obey God. But they're feeling the unpleasantness of the fact that they still have sin, the hunger and the thirst of the fact that there's still so much sin in the world around them. Um, and so they, it's not a pleasant feeling to be hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It, it, it's it's good what you want, but it's still hungering and thirsting. It's still. There's still, a, there's still a desire for something that you don't fully have yet, and other people don't have it yet. Merciful. Merciful. How, how, is, this, how, is, this a, how is there a negative thing in this? Of course, it's a positive thing to be merciful, but what is he saying? He's, mercy is shown to two different kinds of people. Showing mercy to sinners. Is that an easy thing to do, to have sinners around you and to show them mercy? No, that, that gets you into a mess of showing mercy to sinners. That's a hard thing to do. And then also showing mercy to sufferers. Those are the two people that mercy, mercy reaches out to, sinners and sufferers. So you're saying these people are not only, are they the poor in spirit in the morning, they're suffering themselves, but they're also the kind of people who care about other people who are suffering and sort of put themselves out there and attach to people. This person has a great misery and they attach to them and take on some of their suffering too. So they bring into their life more pain by being merciful. And when someone's a sinner and you have mercy on them and you try to help them in their sin, you bring into your life trouble. It's easier just to say, I don't see you, I don't see you. But when someone has sin in their life and they need mercy, that's trouble for you. That's not an easy way to live, to be going around showing mercy, to showing mercy to sinners and showing mercy to sufferers. Pure in heart, pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. They have a, what is a pure, what is pure in heart meant? It meant they have a single attention, a desire to please God, a desire. We talked about this last week. It is a desire to obey God, to please God and nothing else. That's their central control. Purity of heart means someone who's, who's on one thing. They're, they're on one mission. 
to please God, to obey God. And what does that mean? If that's your mission in life, to please God, that means you're, you're, you're trying to please God and not who? Men, right? You're trying to please God and not men, and so it's going to make you unpopular. And as we see, as you proceed through the Beatitudes, that's exactly where we get, right? Into people who are not popular, who are becoming less and less popular with the people around them all the time. Why? Because their hearts are set on pleasing God. They have a purity of heart. They want to please God. Have they pleased God entirely yet? No, but that's where their heart is set on. They desire to please God. They've made it their mission. Like these four disciples who've been called out, they've made it their mission to become students of Jesus, to learn what Jesus is teaching, and to follow Jesus' way. That's what they've, they've, they've abandoned everything else. They've abandoned, uh, they've abandoned their work. They've abandoned their lives before to make this their mission, uh, to, be, to, to, to obey God and nothing else. Um, peacemakers. Um, you know, you can, you can turn this into something highfalutin, but peacemaker means someone who has enemies, people who hurt them, and they seek peace, and they try to make peace with them. That's what a peacemaker is. It's someone who has people who are against them, people who sin against them, people who hurt them. And a disciple of Jesus Christ is not one who's having an easy life, but one who's having trouble. This person's mad at me. This person's after me. This person sinned against me. And instead of responding in retaliation, they're trying, maybe not always succeeding, but they're trying to make peace. They're pursuing peace, right? But it's in the context, notice the context of making peace is that there has to be conflict, there has to be trouble in order for you to try to make There's already rocky, rocky waves. You're living in the middle of waves. So everything that Jesus is describing here is, is someone living in a storm, someone living in the midst of trouble, lots of trouble. He, Jesus is saying to you four, since you fired following me, your lives have sort of gone downhill, haven't they? Your lives have sort of started to deteriorate, haven't they? Lots of pain in your life, lots of new troubles, lots of new agonies, lots of new, you know, new things that you never thought you were going to have to deal with. And you're starting to wonder if you should stick with me, aren't you? You're starting to wonder. Well, let me tell you, your life, as much as trouble is there in it, you are the fortunate ones. You are the blessed ones. Your state is the happy state. Your condition is the good state. This is the good life. I tell you on the authority of my Father, I tell you on the authority of as the Messiah, you are hearing, you, you, what you know is the good life. This is the life. It's not an untroubled life. It's not a life without problems. It's not a life without all sorts of, of struggles and troubles that comes with. The good life includes, in this age, before the kingdom comes fully, in this age, the good life concludes all these troubles, all these problems, all these struggles. And so, and that's very clear with the last two, which I haven't read yet. Let me read them for you. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Because they obey God, they are persecuted. That's not a good life, is it? Notice, this is just part of being a disciple. This comes with the terror. Like Paul said, those who try to obey God, try to please God, will be persecuted. It just comes with it. It just goes with the territory. There's no missing it. It comes with being a disciple of Jesus is persecution. And he says it again. And by the way, the way he summarizes all of this is to talk about the trouble of being attached to Jesus, that attaching yourself to Jesus brings all sorts of trouble into your life. And that's the ninth one. When he turns around and says, and when he says to them, you, this is your life. Blessed are you. Fortunate are you that this is your life. And the life he describes does, sounds the very opposite of fortunate, the very opposite of blessed, 
or happy or flourishing. This does not sound like flourishing. This, sound, this is not flourishing. This is ridiculous. What more absurd thing could Jesus have said than blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, because you are my disciple, because you stick with me and you follow me. This is what... Okay, so what Jesus is doing here is trying to cheer up his disciples. I don't mean that in a, in a sort of silly way, but that's what he's doing. He's bringing comfort to his disciples, saying, yes, I've called you into something that has really messed up your life. You had a nice little business, didn't you, on the lake? You had a nice little family on the lake, a nice little place, didn't you? And I just came in and wrecked it. I totally wrecked it. I ruined it all. Well, guess what? That life you had before was nothing. This is the fortunate life. This you're living now is the blessed life. All this trouble this is the blessing. This is the fortunate. This is the flourishing. So he's cheering them up. He's saying, you're fortunate today, but why are they fortunate? You say, well, none, I haven't heard the fortunate part. Yeah, you haven't. You have not heard the fortunate part yet. He just said you're fortunate. He didn't explain why you're fortunate. And the reason you're fortunate is because of the coming kingdom of God. And the second half of every one of these nine beatitudes, the second half is once again, just nine different ways of saying, God, is because you're fortunate because God is going to do this. That's the way the beatitude works. Fortunate are these people who are miserable because they're fortunate because God is going to do this. Nine different things, he says, although two of them are exactly the same. But, uh, but nine, nine, nine different ways, approximately, nine different ways, he said, uh, God is going to do this. Because he's going to do this, that's why your life is fortunate. Because what you're enduring now is not the end of the story. Do you understand what's coming? Would you understand? And so he gives nine, uh, nine descriptions of what God is going to do for you. And once again, this isn't nine different things. Some people are going to have a vision of God. Some people are going to be called sons of God. Some pe- no, 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 no. It's nine different ways of describing the coming kingdom. Nine different ways of describing this is what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. They don't know about all that yet. But when Jesus returns, we know this is what it's going to look like. And so what does he say? Why are these people fortunate? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First of all, he says, because they possess the kingdom of heaven. Second of all, he says, for they will be comforted. And the way that's set up means by God. God will bring their comfort. God will comfort them on this day when Jesus returns. And it says they will inherit the earth. They will inherit the earth. When Jesus comes, when Jesus comes back, the earth will be, the new heavens and the new earth, they will, these are the ones who will inherit the earth. These disciples now are the ones who will one day inherit the earth, inherit the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus is going to set up. He says they will be filled. Filled by what? Righteousness. It means, the word there sort of means like they will be stuffed. They will be stuffed as with a feast with righteousness, meaning they themselves will become fully righteous, doing God's will freely, completely set free from their sins. And everybody, as far as the eye can see, will be the same. Everyone living in righteousness. Everyone living completely loving and peaceful lives. Everyone living lives obedient to God. The whole, it will be a nation, a, a kingdom made up of people who are all righteous, obeying God. He said they will, they're hungering right now for righteousness. They have an emptiness because they haven't become all they want to be, and there's so much sin in their family, so much sin in their church, so much sin in their community, so much sin all around them. But one day they will be completely filled with what? Righteousness. 
sin gone, driven away, and all the consequences of sin, driven away, sin completely driven away. What else does he promise by the kingdom? He says, for they will be shown mercy. Their sins will not be accounted for. They will be, they've they, they already been forgiven of their sins if they've come to follow Jesus, but he's saying to them that one day you will receive the mercy of God. God will, in your suffering, remember what mercy deals with, sin and suffering. In your sin, complete mercy, forgiveness of all of those sins, none of it held against you, all of it forgiven and washed away. And in your suffering, all of it done away with all of it gotten rid of, all of it taken care of uh, by the mercy of, the great mercy of God, which our mercy, you know, doesn't compare. But we are trying to be merciful in the little ways that we, we live in this world, but God will one day pour out mercy on us. This is why we're fortunate. This is why disciples of Jesus are fortunate because of this mercy. What else? They will see God, verse 8, for they will see God. This is the way, this is one of the classic ways that Jesus return and, and heaven is talked about. What will be the greatest joy of heaven? The greatest joy of heaven is that you will see and know God. You will experience, you, you have hints of God right now. You, you have his word. You know things about him. You've had, you've had uh, the spirit working in you and you've, and you've seen the, the glory of God in different ways. But one day you will know him fully even as you are fully known. You will know Jesus. You will know the Father. You will know. We, we don't need to get into philosophical discussions about what that means that we, we will see God. But it means that you will have this deep uh, sense and knowledge of God and all his magnificence and glory that will fully satisfy every longing of your heart. Everything in your heart will be fully satisfied by seeing God and being in his presence and knowing him. What else will happen? Uh, let, let's finish up here. They will be called sons of God. These will be the ones who are the children. These in the world, these disciples, these are the ones who are the true children of God, cared for by God, loved by God, watched over like parents, but also uh, they will become like God. They will become like Christ, right? They will be like, like father, like son, you know, the uh, son like father. They will become like God. There will be sons like God. And then two other ones. Uh, for once again, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Once again, that's a way of saying everything in one phrase, kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Um, all this is to be theirs when the kingdom of heaven comes fully. And then the last thing Jesus says is in verse 12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. There is a great reward in heaven. That doesn't mean a payment for your good deeds. You did these three good deeds, so these three little prizes are coming. No. This is the reward of, uh, of the kingdom. This is the reward of God's glory. This is the reward of being a part of God's kingdom and, and, and all that God is doing uh, because you are his disciple, because you have been forgiven of your sins. None of it is something you merited or did. It's not because you did good things. It's because God has been gracious to you and called you to make you his child and to make you his disciple. So here's what I want to do. Whoa, I'm way over time. Um, what should I do? Hmm. I have to give application. So I'll give these really speedily and I'll have to elaborate on them next week. Um, I have, uh, let me, hmm. oh, let me come. Okay. I have what I, uh, th this is more important. So let me do this first. Um, I wanted to, to, to just, well, I've already said this, but I want to remind you of it, so maybe I don't need to spend as much time on it, but I'll give you four things really quickly. 
Number one, notice what Jesus' application of this passage is. Did you catch Jesus' application? A one-word application that Jesus gave. When Jesus was preaching this thing about the Beatitudes, he gave one word of application. You know what the word was? Rejoice. That's his application. So that's my application too. Rejoice because your reward is great because there is a great thing that is coming in the kingdom of God. And when we say rejoice, and the Bible tells you to rejoice, it doesn't necessarily mean feel good right now. Feel a lot better right now. That's not what it means. It's not talking about your emotions. It's saying take the right attitude towards life. Understand how good. You may not be able to feel it fully, but get your head on straight and understand that you are blessed. Understand that you have the happy life. Understand that you are so fortunate that God has come into your life and he's called you into this life with all the struggles and all the troubles that are in your life. You are fortunate. These, str- these struggles and these pains and these troubles that you are maybe trying to set yourself free of, that's not what life is about. Life is about following God and obeying God. You've been called as a disciple to follow him. Stick on that path. Rejoice. Take the right attitude towards this. You are blessed. Something wonderful is coming. Your reward is great. Um, uh, he will very soon give you all that you need. And, we'll, and you, you may, he will very soon give you all that you need. Like when the Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon, all that kind of stuff. You may say soon. It's not soon. It's like, it's like years away, decades away probably. Um, well, let me just tell you something. When I came to this church, which seems like about three months ago, I was 31 years old and I'm 50 today. That just went by in a heartbeat. Your next 20 years are going by in a heartbeat. Everybody in here, your death is coming soon, or Jesus is coming before that. It's soon. And when he comes, blessing is with him. Reward is with him for all those troubles. Will all bad things, you know, from one of these famous novels, I won't say the title, but one of these famous, will all bad things really come undone? Yes, all bad things will come undone. Undone, as if they never happened. You will be set free of all that. All that you need is coming with God. So rejoice in God. My second application was trust God, that he will very soon give you all that you need, that all your troubles are coming to an end very soon. Number three, relax. Some of you are so anxious, and I understand why, because I have the same problem. You're so anxious and uptight because your life is such a mess. There's so much mess in your life, so many things that need to be mopped up, cleaned up, put away, taken care of. There's this thing that's broken and I got to get it fixed. There's this thing in my life that I got to get turned around. There's this I got to get better in this area. I got to get that. And so we are so overwhelmed with that. Um, Relax. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, Jesus said all that trouble is part of the flourishing life. All those problems, all that trouble... Is part of the fortunate life. You're living the fortunate life. You say, with all these troubles? Yes. This is Jesus' word to you. With all those troubles, you are living the fortunate life. You are living the flourishing life. And relax. Oh, another, another translation of this, which I love, is congratulations. Congratulations to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations to those who mourn. It's getting at the heart of the matter of saying, Oh, wake up. Congratulations. You may not know congratulations are in order, but they are. Wow, is your life privileged. Wow, is your life blessed. Wow, is your life fortunate. Did Jesus call you out of your sin? The 
party can never end if that's true in your life, that Jesus called you out of your sin to discipleship. You're still a sinner, I know. I still, you're still hungering for righteousness, thirsting for righteousness. What a fortunate life you have. What a blessed life you have. Oh, let me tell you about my problems. Yeah, list them, list them. And when you get done with all your problems, fortunate, blessed, blessed. You know why? Because the kingdom of heaven, and this is the only one that's in the present tense, is yours. It's already secure. It's already in your pocket. You already have the kingdom of heaven. You have already been connected with the kingdom of heaven. All the glories of it you haven't seen yet. Everything that's coming you have not felt or experienced yet. But the kingdom of heaven is yours today. You have been forgiven of your sins. And that was the gateway. What we're celebrating in just a moment at the table, the forgiveness of your sins was the gateway, the doorway into the kingdom. You're already in the kingdom of God. All the glory of it hasn't come yet, all the blessing, but you are fortunate because that is what is coming for you. And so no matter how the the trouble and problems in your life, everything that you're going through, um, relax, relax, relax. Yes, if there's trouble, but Jesus is taking care of you and he's coming back. 